Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw and happy Valentine's Day. To celebrate Valentine's Day, I wanted to have on the podcast my very, very good friend, Dr. Greg Coles. Um, Greg is a senior research fellow at the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. He's the author of uh, a few books, including Single Gay Christian and No Longer Strangers. We talk about both those books on this podcast, uh, especially his most recent book, No Longer Strangers. He holds a PhD in, in English from Penn State and works as a writer, speaker, and worship leader. The dude is just all around awesome. As you'll see, Greg's amazing. A lot of you guys know Greg, and he's just one of the most delightful human beings to walk the face of the earth. Also, um, just to let you know that we have recently, both I mean, both Greg and I have, have helped produce this new resource called Parenting LGBTQ Kids. We produced it through the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, and it is a discipleship resource to help Christian parents to embody both the, the grace and truth of Jesus toward their LGBTQ loved one. Uh, we have a pre-order discount that's available. Uh, the, the resource comes out February 28th, but if you pre-order it between now and February 28th, you'll get 20 bucks off of this resource. That's uh, L- uh, parentinglgbtqkids.com. Go to parentinglgbtqkids.com and all the info is in the show notes. Okay. Let's get to know the one and only Dr. Gregory Coles. Welcome to the basement, Dr. Greg Coles. Oh, hey, thanks. It's always a pleasure (laughs) to be in your basement. This is the second time that you've been in the basement uh, for Theology and Raw. Yeah, we like, did a double header. Some, what sometime last year? No, not last year anymore. Twenty twenty. Twenty years ago. Twenty twenty. Year yeah. and a half ago. Wow. I had Tom in here. Uh, uh, so that we did two and a half, almost two and a half hours on Brothers Karamazov, and I was like, nobody is going to listen to this. This is, you know, the f- five people who keep asking me to do a co- podcast on the book. I'm like, I would enjoy that, but I don't know if anybody else. And I've gotten so many people that like raved about that episode. There you go. You should do more on literature. I know. I was thinking maybe like once a month, once like whenever I finish a book to have somebody come in and, but he's such an expert. He's read it like 10 times and teaches it like every year. And so I don't know if I can get that for every book I read. I'm reading, um, oh, it's right over there. Uh, East of Eden. Have you read? No, I haven't. I've heard good things. As have I. I mean, it's a classic. Do you have a top five favorite fiction? I'm not, we. Oh my gosh. Um, I feel like. My my number one fiction personally is definitely uh, C.S. Lewis Till We Have Faces. I've never even heard of that book. What you've oh <laughs> people Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. It's a retelling of the myth of Cupid and Psyche. And if you want fiction that is theologically rich, really? there's just there's there's none better. I mean, some people prefer Lewis's Space Trilogy. Yeah, and I, space, a good friend of mine said that's his. The Space Trilogy is great. Less so that hideous strength. That hideous strength is fine, but I think I'm less philosophically on board with what Lewis is trying to do in that hideous strength. Uh, Paralandra, fantastic, wonderful, out heard. of the silent planet, delightful. But Till We Have Faces for me is top shelf Lewisian fiction. That's not part of the trilogy? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, totally totally different vibes than the Space Trilogy. Really? Uh, it's great. Um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's Half of a Yellow Sun is glorious. The Indonesian uh, or <laughs> No, no, it's uh she's Nigerian. It's about the Nigeria Biafra war. Oh wow. Um, 
And it is just, it's historically rich. It's so, so thoughtful, so insightful about just the human condition. Is it fiction or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Wow. Yeah, that's definitely up there for me. Um, For sheer writing beauty, I would say uh, Anthony Doerr's uh, All the Light We Cannot See. Huh. It's glorious. I don't know who he is. Is he Anthony Dort? He's a, he's in Idaho, actually. Um, he's one of our he's one of our homegrown delights. He's in Boise. Wait, I've heard about this guy. He won he won Pulitzer Prize or New York Times. Yeah, yeah. So he won he won the Pulitzer for All the Light We Cannot See. Anthony, and he's in Boise. Like I think he lives not far from you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's... Well, we're not close personal friends yet, um, but I I can always wish and dream. He has a new book that just came out called Cloud Cuckoo Land. Um, and one of my, one of my other writer friends who is also brilliant, Kimi huh. Cunningham Grant, she's amazing. Huh. Um, she texted me and she was like, oh my gosh, I just finished Cloud Cuckoo Land. You're going to love it. So I need to read it. Okay. But yeah. Anthony Doerr, just sheer writing prowess. Wait, is it hard? Is it like traditional literature, like good literature? It's kind of hard to read or is it, is it more like I Steinbeck? I always think mean, Steinbeck's really easy to read. I think it's more often what makes, I think what makes a lot of traditional literature hard for people to read is like the narrative accessibility like yeah. i understand this sentence but i don't understand how all these sentences fit together into a story that makes sense yes. and pulls me in i would say all the light we cannot see is really like narratively accessible okay so uh so in that sense i think it's it's yeah more more than your average classic literature i think it's the sort of thing that a lot of okay. people can pick up and okay enjoy. not like cormac mccarthy or you know <laughs> whom i love but man that, that's McCarthy, a chore it is a chore i mean i mean the road wasn't the road is bad. at least yeah. narratively accessible yeah, yeah, i feel yeah. like some other mccarthy less so yeah um but yeah i would say i would say door is an easier read okay. than mccarthy at least uh, certainly a less depressing read well <laughs> it has its heavy moments but like it's not as heavy overall as mccarthy which is just like okay pretty dark yeah. or yeah yeah i mean the road from what i i've only read two of his books but i think the road is probably the least dark among them and even that has some dark scenes but but an overall very positive movie sad i don't want to give too much away but yeah <laughs> i mean I, the road if you haven't read the road do, I mean, a, that, do that a two and a half hour so podcast good. on it i know i maybe i feel like i would need to read it again like i i my memory doesn't retain stuff well and i went and watched a movie the other day and i was like it felt like I kind of remember the book a little bit, even from the movie. It wasn't like it all came back, but um, yeah, I totally forgot to mention. I'm going to release this podcast. We're recording it. I don't know what today is, February 1st, but it's going to release on Valentine's Day. Oh, happy Valentine's so Day, everybody. I want to talk about that. And that's relate. Would that fit in with your book? So this is the book, his Greg's second uh, Christian book you've written. Um, no longer strangers finding belonging in a world of alienation would that would this book be a good launching point into talking about your theology of valentine's day oh probably so i mean i I didn't write it thinking like this book should be pitched for (laughs) valentine's day oh actually can i tell you a side story about valentine's day so um uh when i uh i first met our mutual friend rebecca um Uh, I uh, I uh, got an email from somebody, just some random person I didn't know back in 2018, and they were like, <laughs> hey, I work uh, at the, the Theological Library at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I just wanted you to know that Single Gay Christian is on our Valentine's Day book display, 
And yes. so she sent me a picture <laughs> yes. of my book, and it was like next to like uh, like Tim and Kathy Keller's book on marriage, <laughs> and some book called The Passion Principle, which I was like, that sounds spicy. And then like <laughs> there it was, my first book. Uh, yeah, so Single Gay Christian, which is my first book, um, it, it was on a Valentine's Day book display, and I was like, I did not write this book thinking that people would. Uh, read it for Valentine's Day, but did, here did, we are. Did, did Rebecca was she responsible for that? Because or, no. or no, she just noticed. No, it. though I actually have since okay. met the met the person who was responsible. Oh, okay, who's also so that was delightful and now lives in Boise. I'll introduce you sometime. Oh, um, did I meet her at the conference? Anjali. Yes. Yes. Um, she was at the conference, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She seems delightful. Quality. I was like, man, Boise's scoring some people here. We got we got great people coming in. I'm they just saying, are. this I is know. this is keep it coming. This this episode is basically PR for encouraging people to move to <laughs> Boise. We've got Anthony Dorr. We've got the former the former library setup director at Dallas Theological Seminary. We've got big people. We have here. Greg Coles. Um, yeah, we've you've been here for eight months, six months. Let's see, since seven July. What is that? Seven Whatever, months now, yeah. I think. A little more than half a year. Yeah. How would you just? How's, how's the transition been? Uh, here's here's what I would say about Boise. I would say that Boise is full of individual people that I deeply love. Yeah. I think if you distilled all the people of Boise into a single person, that person and I would probably not be close friends. Um, yeah, which yeah. is okay because you don't have to, you <laughs> don't have to culture be here. It's hard to with, figure out. It's it's got its challenges. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is the most churched place that I have ever lived. Um, okay. Which I guess if you move from the south, I think people who come here from the south are like, "Wow, Boise is so unchurched." <laughs> but when you move from yeah. the northeast, and before that, you lived in Indonesia. Right. You move to Boise, and you're like, "Yeah, yeah, hot dang!" There's a lot of churches yeah. here. Yeah. yeah. No, like, huge churches. There's only a few that are, like, over maybe a couple thousand. Like, there's not – Boise is not that big of a city. It's 200 – the metro is 660,000, I think, but growing like crazy every day. But, um, yeah, we don't have – like, when you go to the south, I just – the size of the churches. It's like you go to church with, like, 5,000, and it's like a house church plant, you know. It's, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Um, but, yeah, there are – yeah, there are a lot of churches. I came from Simi Valley, and I feel like there's a decent amount there. But I would say, yeah, definitely more. They're they're well. Then you throw in, you know, more the Mormon Church, and um, beyond that, there's not a, there's not a whole lot of Catholic churches. Yeah, I so. haven't noticed a ton of Catholic presence. It's yeah. also been interesting to me just the number of non denominational, yeah. like yeah. the proportion of right. non denominational churches. I right. think in the Northeast there are a lot more churches right. tied to denominations and it's like ah and we've got a few non-denoms yeah here it's yeah. like 97% of the churches it feels like they're non-denominational yeah yeah, yeah. with that, yeah. that good western you know yeah uh, innovative oh. spirit oh yeah yeah Idaho is a very it's not even like it's conservative but it's more like libertarian kind of like it's uh beyond <laughs> um yeah the culture here is interesting at the face value, I would say very nice, but we've had in my anecdotal experience been to get below the surface is, is can be pretty difficult with people. It's like, it's like you, you linger on that kind of like, if you're just having a casual conversation, it's like, it's easy, but to get like depth, mm. you just, even in churches, you've been in churches for a while and it's just like to get beneath the surface. It's just, it does, it's like either there's not much there or everybody's just kind of prone to put it on the kind of good face everything's fine you know but yeah I statistically think, we know that's not right i think the idea the idea that we need to posture ourselves in a certain kind of way 
in order to be oh now I'm talking about belonging oh this is this is bringing the circle segue. back around to no longer strangers look at me go <laughs> um, the the idea that we have to posture ourselves in a certain kind of way um, and that to go too deep and reveal too much of yourself is actually a threat to fitting in somewhere um, yeah hmm. I think I think it, I think it's endemic to the human condition. But it maybe in some ways feels particularly endemic in this area. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Like, don't be too don't be too particularly yourself, um, mm-hmm, because at the yeah. moment you stop seeming like everybody else, <laughs> that will be the moment at which we know you don't really belong. Oh, here. interesting. That's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. It's such a cool. Like for me, I, I think it's like the perfect size town. It's not too spread out. Like when I go to Phoenix or something, it's like my word to get. From one neighborhood to the other, I just feel like you're driving forever. And L.A. is, you know, obviously a massive sprawl. And I like the culture of California, though. Like, that's, mm-hmm. I do miss that. But there's, like, I would say downtown, north end, around the university. Like, I feel like there's this kind of, like, you know, mountain granola athletic kind of culture, like, which I, I, I gel with. I think it's pretty cool. So, yeah. I'm a fan, but it hasn't been the easiest uh, relationally. Um for, for us, it's taken a while. We're, we're making more and more friends now. But anyway, um, so how, give it. So you're single um, and feel called to a life of celibacy. Um, and how how do you process Valentine's Day? Like, what I want to know is, what are some of the potential potentially problematic statements, phrases, assumptions that kind of go into Valentine's Day that you may be more alert to than the average, say, married, dating, Christian. Ooh. Is that a good way to put it? Yeah. I mean, I would I would never want to posture myself as somebody who, like, gets it more because it's like, <laughs> ah, I, with my deep insight, <laughs> I know the things. Um, but I think there are certainly things about uh, the messaging that happens around Valentine's Day and maybe just more broadly, like, the messaging that happens around love and romance mm-hmm. and marriage um, that I think once you have said to yourself consciously, I'm going to live a life that chooses to find meaning without those things, hmm. then you start to be suspicious of all the people who are like, the most meaningful thing I've ever had in my life was when I felt the warm fuzzies from my sweetheart. Um, one, of, one, of my, one of my favorite Valentine's uh, memes of all time, yeah. um, it's this picture of St. Valentine. Um, and then it says at the top, roses are red. Violets are blue. I was beaten, beheaded, disinterred by my followers, and now you commemorate my martyrdom by sending each other chocolate. <laughs> Is that true? Is that the what's the myth? Yeah, I mean that's that's more or less the that's more or less the Saint Valentine story. Can you give us a, the, um, the two minute version of Valentine? See, or if I were if if I were if I were more Catholic, if I knew more church history, I could I could give it to you really beautifully. I know but, nothing. Was he but, an early church leader or something? Or uh, yeah, I, uh, I don't even know the timing on okay. on Saint Valentine. Again, all my saints. Yeah. I, my, people can Google. My it, upbringing yeah. is is uh, I mean. I, I, don't get me wrong. I love being a Protestant, but I'm like tragically Protestant in the sense that <laughs> my awareness of church history is yeah, like, yeah. then there was the New Testament and then there was the 20th century. The non-denominational um, and, church. <laughs> right. And then, then, yeah, then, then our current evangelical expression in the West was born and boom, here we are. Yeah. Um, so even growing up in Indonesia, you have that? Yeah. Well, I mean, if anything, Indonesia... Uh, made me even more predisposed to not think that 
Western church history was like a significant object oh, of study. Because that's the, I mean, Christianity that was brought there is Western, right? Yeah. Um, Not that it's still Yeah, is. yeah. The, the entrance of Christianity mostly came from the West into Indonesia. And Protestant mainly? Um, or... Uh, no, there's there's some there's some Catholic presence there. Okay, um, I, the Catholic presence may have even preceded, um, but the circles I was running in were more Protestant. Uh, no, but the thing about growing up in Indonesia versus growing up somewhere in the West is that uh, in the West you see more directly the relevance of church history to current cultural manifestations, okay. even in ways that the culture is now kind of conceiving of itself as post-Christian. Okay. You can still talk about church history as a thing that sort of directly informs where your broader culture is okay. now. Okay. Whereas yeah. in Indonesia, Western church history has very little relevance to the current state Got of Indonesian okay. culture. Okay. Um, so it, yeah. so it's, so it's, and it's, not really an object of cultural study. It could be an object of faith study if you want it to be. But again, I was I was much too sort of iconoclastic evangelical to be paying much attention. So these yeah. days, I feel like I'm trying to catch up because I've only somewhat recently developed even an academic appreciation for the value of understanding church history. Yeah. Uh, and so now, yeah, now I feel like an infant in my understanding yeah. of church history. I'm the same way, yeah. I mean, I've always, you know, I've always pride myself on being a Bible guy, you know, and, and over the years I've had to kind of footnote that with a little more sensitivity to, there is no such thing as a pure Bible guy. Like we're all products of our tradition and any kind of interpretation of scripture is your, whether you believe it or know it or not, you're interacting with a, a, you know, various traditions, you know, and, or at least you should be in conversation with, you know, tradition and how that works out. And, um, Yeah. I mean, the Bible, even as a Protestant, as a sola scripture, a guy that even that means Bible is the ultimate authority, not the only authority, right? I mean, there are, um, we, I think we st- still appeal to tradition, a tradition that also saw the Bible as the ultimate authority, right? Would that be accurate? I don't know. We're yeah, two I'm, novices I mean, talking to each other about well, something we don't... <laughs> well, we could talk about something like the like the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Are yeah, you familiar? Yeah, yeah. I love um, it. Yeah. So, so the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which would conceive of the sources of Christian authority as being uh, uh, scripture, uh, tradition... Right. Um, the, does the Holy Spirit make it on? Experience, or, I think. Experience. Okay. Right. Uh, and then ration. And then, and then reason. Yeah. Reason. But even the quadro, it's not, they're not all equal, right? Like they, like Wesley would be the first one to say the Bible is the ultimate authority of these, but they all kind of yeah, interact. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Wesley is saying like sometimes experience and the Bible are up against each other, right, and right, so you know right. sometimes you go with experience just because it seems better. <laughs> uh, I think the the point of the quadrilateral is to say like those four things need to work in unity, yeah, um, in order to inform like. So, so basically, basically to say, like, if you're taking up scripture and you're saying, like, I'm just scripture, right. and that's why I'm ignoring tradition, I'm ignoring right. reason, and I'm ignoring my own human you experience, and you being like, it's just the Bible. Yeah. Um, his point is, like, the Bible needs to be understood in the right. context of these other things. These are all interacting um, with each other, whether we like it or not. Like it just right. is, right? right? I mean, so, so yeah. So I think uh, in the in the same way, like people who are suspicious of tradition are often saying like, well, the trouble with tradition is you start to do something because it's tradition and ignore the fact that it's not actually in scripture. It doesn't actually align well with our experience. That's what I like when I say the Bible of Trump's tradition or whatever, it's, it's more that I guess in my context, I'm typically pushing back against a modern evangelical Western American 
church tradition, you know, like it's, it's typically not so much as much like, no, I think Augustine, you know, got it wrong. Although there's, there could be some of that, but Gregory of Nyssa, you know, I, I, I don't know. Like you we are standing on the shoulders. Get all freaked out about Gregory of Nyssa. Well, he's, I mean, the main, as far as I know, the main or one of the main architects of the Nicene Creed and a full blown universalist, which is interesting. Uh, we could we could go right i I don't know (laughs) they're bringing all kinds of interesting but but yeah i think uh it's interesting how much um and again i'll speak to like present day western evangelicals because that for Uh better or worse is more or less my tribe right i mean i have a hairy relationship with evangelicalism (laughs) these days but still i would i would claim that as my tribe and and many of them would conceive of themselves as being kind of anti-tradition yeah but i think that the the anti-tradition is mainly you know we're anti-tradition that came before 1950 um (laughs) but you know things that things that the religious right introduced to us as like undeniable tenets of the faith in 1973 (laughs) we are now so committed to um so so the the impulse the human impulse toward tradition i think continues um, but it's just a question yeah. of which traditions we're allowing right, to right, inform right. us. And it's just being aware traditions like water for a fish, right? I mean, there's, we're just, we're always going to be products of some kind of tradition, some movement like that's sure. acknowledging it and being able to critique it where it needs to be critiqued and affirm yeah. where it needs to be affirmed. And, and again, that's where I go back to like constantly saying, does this resonate with scriptural themes, passages, the flow of the text and, or does it not? Um, In which spirit, I think we can talk about a tradition like Valentine's Day. Okay, yeah, there we go, yeah. <laughs> uh, so how do you feel? Yeah, I'm just curious. How, how uh, assuming when this isn't technically Valentine's Day when we're recording, but it is when people are listening, how, do you, how will you feel on February 14th? I will feel largely indifferent. Okay. Um, I think, and uh, there, there have been times in my life when uh, people's, people's obsession with romantic love uh, would have felt really alienating to okay. me, I think. Um, uh, these days, maybe, maybe it's that I've grown a little more confident in my sense of my okay. own calling, yeah. um, and so I feel less angst around the holiday than okay. I used to. Um, but a younger Greg would have felt greatly angsty, um, okay. and I think it was largely because there was this there was this heightened uh, narrative that said, ah, the, the deep fulfillment, the place where your heart finally finds rest is when you find this sort of uh, erotic duality. Right, right. Um, like, that's, <laughs> where, that's where it's at. I'm, yeah. Uh, let me tell you, evangelical Christians love their erotic duality. <laughs> Can you expand that? What does that mean? <laughs> uh, so... Um, so, so, so we've, so we've, we've got our, we've got our four loves, right. As, as Lewis would remind us, mm-hmm. um, uh, we've got, uh, we've got our, our agape, mm-hmm. um, which, and, and in Greek, of course, these loves all kind of like intermingle. Right. Um, so we can't, we can't make the dichotomies too strongly. Right. Um, but we've got our, we've got our agape love, which people associate with like the love of God. We've got our phileo love, like our, uh, our, our, uh, brotherly love, mm-hmm. um, We've got our storge, mm-hmm. um, like our sort of uh, fr- friendy, familial kind of love. Okay. Uh, Passion too is it more like anger could be storge, like more emotional. 
Whereas Eros would be kind of the erotic side of that emotion passion. Or, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, again, I'm, I always, I always I want to be cautious yeah. of like, I feel like you could do a word study yeah. on them. And yeah, as soon as, as soon as I learned that the, that the verb agapao is used in the Septuagint to describe rape, I was like, okay, all bets are off. Really? Because yeah, um, I forget whose rape it is, um, but it's basically like so-and-so agapo, agapo so-and-so. What about Shechem? Um, Shechem maybe? I don't uh, know. No, I th- Dinah uh, or who knows? It might it might be Dinah. Okay. Uh, anyway, but it, but in any case, yeah, the the fact that agap agapao yeah. is used in that context wow. signifies, I think, sort of the the messiness, the fluidity of the boundaries between. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think Storgate does often have or can have yeah. some extra degree of yeah. kind of like um, like the the aggressive side of passion versus eros, which has kind of the. Uh, <laughs> The close, the intimate right. side of passion. Yeah. Um, uh, so, well, so erotic duality. So erotic so duality would suggest that, oh, so the intimate side of passion, that aspect of love, um, is exists between two people, always and only between two people, always and only in a way that's consummated sexually, always right. and only in a way that's connected to marriage and, and you know, and then your 2.3 children and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this narrative that says, like, yeah, the part of your heart that seeks this sort of, like, deep, intimate connection mm-hmm. is meant to be fulfilled in this one person. You know, like, I met my spouse, and that was when I met my best friend, and my life was forever changed, and this is the single most important <laughs> thing in my life. You know, and, and, and yeah. maybe all of those things are true, um, but I think the the primacy of that narrative as like the number one thing right. around which Christians ought to order their lives, yeah. especially when so many of the significant leaders in Protestant evangelicalism in the West are married men, mm-hmm. um, uh, that uh, the the fact that that narrative is so strong then leaves those of us who anticipate not being married men. Uh, including those of us who are LGBTQ, also mm. including all the women, incidentally. Um, mm. But, like, those of us who see <laughs> that narrative as, like, oh, well, this is what we hear is, like, the thing. Um, and then we, uh, we have trouble, I think, seeing how Jesus intends to work particularly in the kinds of loves that he has given to us, mm-hmm. apart from that vision of a particular application of eros in marriage. Okay. Does that lead to your book? I mean, I, I would imagine that this book, I mean, I, well, I endorsed it, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you better know what's in there. It's been a while, though. I, my, my retention rate of books, I mean, I know if I went back and started reading them, I would be like, oh, reminded, you know. But I remember, I mean, it, it's more like your other book. I mean, it kind of has this personal narrative to it, but it really is, too. I mean, a call for the church, right, to be, to, to uh, embody a more biblical and holistic vision for hospitality um, in a way where it, did, where it doesn't let that narrative become the dominant narrative in the church as it has been. Right. I mean, would that be a decent yeah. summary of, yeah, I would say, I would say, uh, uh, in, in large part, no longer strangers was born out of my own angst of feeling like there's, there's this single narrative that I know of mm-hmm. in Protestant evangelicalism for how I'm supposed to express love and find family. Um, like get your Valentine's Day date on, and then once things work out with the right nice young lady, then you know onward the story progresses. Then you'll build your family. Then you know someday you'll have grandkids. You'll always spend the holidays together. <laughs> Just like this, uh, this this sort of iconic vision of how uh, how intimacy is supposed mm-hmm. to play out, how belonging is supposed to play yeah. out. Um, 
And so recognizing that that was not going to be the story of my life insofar as I could discern mm-hmm. it, um, then that, that challenged me to wrestle through, like, what does it mean to find belonging in the world when the ways that people tell you you're supposed to find belonging don't actually work out for you? Yeah. Um, and is it, is it possible that maybe embracing the weird ways in which you particularly get to belong with people is a lot better, is actually a lot more fruitful yeah. and more life-giving mm-hmm. than just trying to trying to sort of scrape your way into someone else's mm. vision of belonging. Um, and so, the, the, so this book kind of moves episodically through um, various aspects of belonging and various ways that I have found or not found okay. belonging over the years. So the, so the book is broken into three parts. Um, we've got uh, belonging in, which is all about uh, spaces, physical places. Mm-hmm. Um, Belonging with is about um, people and, and relationships. And then belonging to is about uh, like uh, ideas and purposes um, and the ways that we feel a sense of, of calling and vocation in the world that gives us a sense that my the fact that I am here matters for okay. some reason. Okay. Um, oh, so chapter titles are so brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Jedi's training. Friendship costs twenty five dollars an hour. What's that one up? I forget. Oh, so friendship costs twenty five dollars an hour. Um, is that that is probably my favorite writing in this book really? from like a pure storytelling okay. perspective. Yeah. Um, it's about a, a man that I met uh, when I was in grad school, and I was tutoring the GRE. Which, for those of you who don't know the GRE, God bless you, more oh, power to man. you. Um, the GRE, it's kind of like the SAT, but for grad school, um, an entrance me out, exam. About it, yeah. um, and uh, I I have the blessing and curse of being pretty good at standardized testing. Okay. So, what'd, you, what'd you get on the GRE? GRE? Uh, um, I, I plead the fifth. Um, Why? I want to know. I, got I think a, I failed it. I got I was a the first person to sufficiently fail it. good score <laughs> that I was able to get a job with kind of a bougie tutoring company. Let's leave it at that. Is it like 600 um, to 2000 the scoring or is that, is that, or is that um, at the, so the scoring of the GRE has changed multiple times. Uh, folks who are tuning into this podcast, I'm sure you're so glad to know that you're <laughs> going to get schooled on GRE scoring. Um, when I took the GRE and I think when you took the GRE, because I think the scoring had been consistent for okay. a while, um, it was scored uh, out of out of sixteen hundred. Sixteen hundred. Um, okay. So kind of like an old SAT in that regard. Okay. Um, I think I got like a seven hundred. <laughs> <laughs> I literally I got my score. I'm like, I, I don't know how I even got into PhD program because I was I was like one of the main things they were looking at and pff, yeah. Anyway, so embarrassing. Uh, um, but look, here you are, none the worse for wear. Um, <laughs> well, people spend a whole life. They'll spend months. I think I spent a weekend studying for it. And I wasn't, I, I, I had the desire, I had ambition. I could study literally 20 hours a day, every day and be a happy cat. So I had all that. I just had zero natural, like my, my vocabulary was like, it was still, I mean, bad, but I mean, yeah, it was, I don't know what half the words meant. They're asking me on the test. Anyway, uh, we're getting I, off track. The GRE <laughs> was so fun. Anyway, the point is I was, I was tutoring this exam, mm-hmm. um, when I started grad school. And so, um, one of my students in state college, uh, who was currently an undergrad at Penn state, but he was an older student, um, and not particularly a likable person. Um, but between a variety of factors caused us to be in one another's lives quite a bit. Um, and I dealt with him kind of like I deal with nuts in my brownies, like fine when I'm in the mood, but also like a low key irritation. Um, and I'm the same way. Uh, so, so, uh, yeah, so, so, um, 
So here I was, you know, I just moved to this new town, um, and I'm kind of like, I want to find places to belong, and I'm so obsessed with my own sense of uh, belonging. Okay. Um, and meanwhile, I've got this relationship with this guy who I'm like, I don't really want to be in a relationship with you. I'm getting paid $25 an hour. He oh. starts treating me less like a tutor and more like a friend, and I'm kind of uncomfortable, and it's awkward. Um, uh, I won't spoil the end of the chapter for you, but suffice it to say, things changed um, that caused me to realize that he had actually felt like he was in search of belonging the oh, entire time. And he was paying $25 um, an hour. To... And yet the way I interacted with him in retrospect, I realized that I had been so obsessed with my own desire to belong that I had completely, I, I had been so concerned when I moved to state college, so concerned with praying the prayer, like God, please like help me find people I can belong with Mm -hmm. that. It never occurred to me because I'm apparently a total narcissist. It never occurred to me to pray the other side of the prayer, which is God help me find people to whom I can give the gift of belonging. Um, and so I realized, uh, tragically too late in this case, I realized, um, that I had missed the opportunity to give that gift to him. Interesting. Um, Wow. That's good. How would you describe, so you say, I mean, it's this, book is born out of kind of seasons where you've had to find belonging, found it, other times when you haven't found it so much. Can you describe maybe both what it feels like to be in some kind of community? And as a Christian, I'm sure church community or whatever, where true belonging isn't really happening. Like, what does that look like? And then what does it look like when you do find belonging? Yeah. Um, I think in terms of, in terms of some things that it, that it doesn't look like, um, uh, some of some of what I do in in this book uh, is uh, grieve the the relationships that ended up being really damaged after I came out uh, oh, yeah, as yeah. as gay. So uh, it's it's not uh, no longer strangers is not all about sexuality right. um, in the way that single gay Christian is. Like single gay Christian is a very like thematic memoir on the subject of sexuality. Yeah. Uh, in No Longer Strangers, I had the joy of only bringing up sexuality when it felt relevant and like not shying away from it, but also not needing to talk about it all the time, mm-hmm. um, which in my mind is sort of like the ideal for life, yeah. too. You know, yeah. being gay and celibate, you know, doesn't take a lot of my time in general because like not having <laughs> sex takes very little time. Uh, <laughs> So, so there's a sense in which I want to be like, yeah, like this is a relatively small part of my life. I don't really need to talk about it or think about it a lot. Um, but when I feel like I don't have the freedom to be able to process it when it is relevant, then I'm trying to sort of stuff it down. And then it feels like it, you know, swells even larger in that contained space. Hmm. And, um, so trying to strike the balance in relationship between not needing to talk about sexuality all the time, but having the space to talk about it when I do need to talk about it, um, so, so after my first book came out and I was finally for the first time, uh, you know, choosing to talk about it's it. It's kind of how you came out, right? Yes, I, I came out with the book. It's not, <laughs> not recommended to others if you're looking for, looking for strategies. Um, <laughs> Write a book. Uh, when I, when I started having those conversations, um, there were, there were some really heartbreaking, uh, ends of relationships. Can you share any sp- um, particulars? Uh, yeah, so, so one of the, well, so, I mean, I, I tell some stories in the book. Um, and so, yeah, if they're in the book, I guess they're you know, public <laughs> knowledge at this point. Um, so so there, was, uh, there was one family in particular uh, that uh, left our church 
um, after my book came out, specifically because um, I was leading worship at the church and they weren't comfortable with me being a worship leader um, as somebody who was who was gay and celibate. Even though you're, uh, I just will never understand. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Everybody is on a journey and have their different backgrounds and indeed, narratives and indeed. fears and, and stuff, and I but could, it just doesn't, doesn't, just doesn't make sense. But I, I, I'm glad it doesn't make sense to you. I, I could appreciate, I, I could try to charitably, you know, explain <laughs> where they're coming from, but that would get us maybe slightly off topic. Well, I'm curious, I don't want really to get a lot too deep in the weeds, but when the discussion happens, maybe you or the pastor or whoever, when they're leaving saying... The, it's because he's committed to the traditional view of marriage and sexuality that he's committed to celibacy. Like he's theologically like, what, what's the problem here? Like, what's the answer? Is it, is there any like, or what was it in this case? I mean, um, I think for them, was it just blatant homophobia? I mean, I, I think, I think they would say, um, uh, their, their sort of paired concern, um, was that, uh, using, Using the using the word gay was okay. inviting a you know a, an unhealthy kind of posture um, toward my intrinsic sinfulness. I, I think fundamentally it boiled down to uh, they they believe that the the experience of uh, same sex orientation okay. was itself like a morally culpable sin. So you were in a sense living into in sin by yeah, being yeah. gay. Uh, and so and so in my in my uh, the the fact that I wasn't pursuing orientation change. Um, like at one point okay. before they left, the husband had reached out to me and said like, Hey, like, I'd really love to like counsel you to help you become more straight. Was um, he a reparative therapist or just, no, or, he was, no, he was just, just, he was just a guy who okay. believed I was in sin yeah. and wanted to help, okay. which, which again, like in so far, in so far as I, in so far as I agreed with him theologically, I could have said like, it's very kind of you to want to help. Um, yeah. I had my reasons to say no, thank you. Um, would they? Well, if if it were up to them, would they say Greg needs to leave the church or just stick around and not lead worship, or either he needs to stop repenting from being, or he needs to start repenting from being gay, or we're gone, or how is it? I mean, what would, I, would they want? I think I think uh, they would have. They definitely uh, had they stayed. I think they would have wanted uh, me to step out of leading worship. Okay, um, and I think they would have wanted the church leaders to be like a Matthew 18 directing me toward directing me toward, you know, pursuing holiness, Um, which again, to their mind, I was not currently pursuing because I wasn't pursuing orientation change. Um, So hold on a second. There's something chipped up here. Let's see. Uh, No. Oh, is that AirPods? Sorry. Uh, No, don't you. Oh, sorry. My earbuds are in. Okay. We're good. We're good. I just want to make sure my (laughs) recording was still going. Let me actually, do this so I can see it a little more. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah. Oh, hey, and we're back. Hey, we're back. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 yeah. So, 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 all of these, all of these concerns uh, factored into their their decision to leave. Um, Real quick, sorry to keep cutting you off. Was it shocking or not? Was it kind of eh, that wasn't too? I shocking. I expected. I mean, there were probably these like, are friends. These aren't just some random like. Yeah, were, these these were friends of mine. Yeah. Um, we there were like six hundred people in our church. Um, and so the fact that there was only one family that left oh, just immediately, one. I mean, okay. o- over the, over the years, 
um, once once COVID rolled around and our services got combined and some of the folks who had been going to a different service were suddenly stuck in the service with me and they were like, oh, we'd forgotten about that gay worship leader who went to the <laughs> other service. That caused some new issues, I think. Okay. Um, but as far as the initial fallout was concerned, um, it was just the one family, okay. Um, okay. which honestly was better than I was expecting. Um, but okay. But speaking to expectations, like... When I when I imagined, because I anticipated ahead of time, I was like, I'm coming out and it's going to be relationally challenging. Like, it's going to impact sure. my belonging in this space in some way. And so I was sort of braced for it. But the way that I thought it would play out in my heart, um, I sort of assumed that I would be like, good riddance, suckers. You know, like, yeah. maybe not that brazen. But, I, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> um, I, I think I was I was ready to feel like these people are you know theologically different enough from me that I'm just I, right. I'm not even interested like I'm just as glad that they're gone, um, and the reality was a lot a lot messier than that. Okay. Um, there was there was a lot more grief in it than that, um, because I realized that um, the the loss of the loss of unity even when it's for. Mm-hmm reasons that make a lot of sense mm-hmm. um is still yeah you know uh yeah we we still we still leak wasteful tears no matter how much plumber's tape we wrap around it yeah um yeah, yeah. yeah you had the pastor and leadership 100 percent behind you right like that that oh yeah yeah you had way more support than like yeah people kind of divided over it they, yeah Kind of mat- not mattered, but you know the leadership. Yeah, I mean, your pastor. I'm there. I really want to meet your pastor. Oh, he's so high quality. And, I'm, yeah. I'm hoping. I'm hoping they'll come out and visit oh, some man. point. We'll Every time out. you describe him, that, that's fantastic. I, I know people that several people where man, it was, even the leadership was kind of on board, but once there started to be some like people leaving and stuff, then all of a sudden the leadership starts to kind of lose their courage a little bit or like, well, can you stop calling yourself gay or have you tried to prepare to therapy? You know, maybe we can give, give it another shot, you know, cause this elder, you know, you know, he gives a lot of money to the church. I don't know if I want to see him leave. They don't say that, but sure. I mean, there's, I've, I've, yeah, I, I know other stories where not having that support from the leadership, um, is super, gosh, I mean, that's, yeah, one friend. I won't name him, but he's, he talks about it in his book. But man, it was just the first time he came out as a gay man. He didn't say he's gay. I think he even says like I wrestle with bisexual attractions or something. Mm-hmm. Married to a woman, theologically conservative. All the all checks off all the boxes. And even then, he had like several families leave. Yeah, like yeah. Oh man, it was ugly. Yeah, I just can't imagine how dehumanizing that would feel. I mean, you're very gracious in saying, you know, like kind of understand the way that way of thinking is and, and you're trying to honor them. But that, does that feel just like or even now when you experience and I know maybe some speaking engagements that gets canceled, canceled because they find out you're a tra- <laughs> not straight. Like it always, it always cracks me up when people ask me to speak and then and then reach out afterward and they're like. Actually, we realized you're a little too gay for our taste. And it's like, how, how did that not come up when you first asked me? Anyway, um, that's neither here nor there. I, you know, the, the, thing that I, the thing that I have tried to, uh, tried to do more and more, and again, this is sort of getting to the question of what it looks like to foster a heart of belonging within the body of Christ, yeah. even when there are people within the body of Christ who would say things that feel like they amount to like we don't we don't count you as part of us mm-hmm. um, or we wish you weren't here mm. um, uh, and the the posture that i've I've tried to take is a posture of saying uh, 
someday, someday, uh, we will all be in the glorious hereafter, um, and these things will be sorted out. And whatever the nature of our relationship is meant to look like, it will be perfect then. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. This family that I dearly loved while they were at our church and continue to dearly love in a really residually painful kind of way, um, there will be a time when our relationship will be the perfect thing that it was meant to be. Um, And in between... You believe that. You you put your hope on that. Like absolutely, yeah. Because I agree with that on paper. It's just functionally, it's just so hard to. I when I when I think about the people the people who think that I am a heretic, um, my I hope that my first thought about them is the delight of the grand unity that we Mm. will share in the end. Um, uh, And and I think when I when I hang my hope on that future unity. I can feel a little more freedom to say it doesn't have to be perfect now. Mm. Um, I don't. I don't have to fix it now. I don't have to convince them that I am okay now. Whatever whatever brokenness exists within us, I can do. I can do what what is incumbent on me to to forgive um, without needing to feel like we have to become besties. Mm. Um, That's good in this life, uh, and I think I think there's. I think we can find a kind of unity in that. Um, in the trust that we will someday be more unified than we can ever fully experience now. So good. I mean, that applies to everybody listening, right? We all have these relational hiccups and problems and tensions and blown relationships and family issues. And um, man, that's, that's great. So can you describe, because you have experienced, would you say you've experienced seasons, communities where it's like, man, this, this is not perfect, but this is, I feel like you belong here. This is, this is, I feel like, this is a great community. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, and you can even describe it in the abstract if you haven't maybe experienced the fullest extent. Sure. Of yeah. I mean, I, I certainly haven't experienced the fullest extent. Um, <laughs> yeah, me neither. I, but, which I think is kind of the point, yeah, right? Is that yeah. we're, we're, always, we're always sort of living, living toward the, the beauty for which we were intended. Right. Um, and, you know, again, we'll, we'll get there in the end. But the fact that we're not quite there yet. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't need to make us angsty about what we have now. Yeah. Um, uh, what what really beautiful belonging has has looked like for me um, is, uh, and I'm I'm gonna use I'm gonna use the word queer here because okay. I just think it's such an appropriate yeah. word for what I'm describing. Yeah. Um, the queering of family, um, in the sense. So, There's your next book. Um, oh, <laughs> um, uh, because okay, and and so so the word queer for for those of you who are like, how dare you use offensive language? Um, I, yeah, I would. The all general listeners are really sensitive. To yeah, language. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, oh man, <laughs> kind of makes me want to drop more exciting oh, words than that, can. but we won't. We'll pass. Um, uh, so. Uh, so the word the word queer, you know, it begins as derogatory, and then like like many a derogatory term, the group of people it's describing take this word up and say like, actually, we're proud to be queer. So around 1990, we see the beginning of um, people. For instance, uh, there were some protests where people were chanting, uh, "We're here, we're queer, get used to it." Huh. Um, uh, so they kind of start to own this label for themselves, which is not um, uncommon for minority no, populations, right? No, to, to uh, reclaim very, very common. Yeah, the the most uh, the most kind of iconic example in the U.S. Um, is the word "black" as a marker of racial oh, right. identity, yeah. um, which was an insult. 
um, prior to the late 50s. Um, And then you've got things like the Black Arts Movement, the Black Power Movement, um, Black is Beautiful, which is sort of like a fashion show. Um, All of these things kind of accentuating the beauty of... Um, you know, cultures and people and bodies that have yeah. dark skin, um, and so there's uh, there's what uh, what rhetorical theorists would call, and I say this because I wrote an article on it once, um, uh, like a semantic affirmation. Okay, here's what the word black literally means. It means that I have dark skin. And I am proud of that fact. Uh-huh. I can affirm that which is semantically true about this word. Yes, indeed. Right. Um, a similar thing happens with queer. Okay, your word queer, you're making fun of me for in some way not fitting the norm of society. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can say, yeah, I don't fit the norm of society. And that's a really good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Uh, so, um, so, so this is why the word queer starts to be reclaimed. And so you, you get things like, uh, queer theory within the academy, you get shows like queer as folk and queer eye, um, which has since, you know, uh, used to be queer eye for the straight guy back when the show first existed. (laughs) Now it's just queer eye. Um, but all these, all these sort of common cultural moments where the word queer starts to, starts to rise in usage now to the point where there are a lot of LGBTQ folks who would prefer the word queer to a word like gay or lesbian or bisexual um, or even something like trans um, because they would say like queer just sort of like it doesn't give too much specific detail it gives me space to not need to nail myself down too specifically but I can own the fact that I am not your norm and that's okay is it accurate to say that queer too does go beyond capturing capturing the specific sexual experience like it's it captures a more broader holistic way in which um sexual and gender minorities are living as minorities in the world. Cause I heard uh, a couple different women who would be lesbians say, you know what? The word lesbian just, just figure it's so sexualized. Like I just picture like, you know, two women getting on or something. It's kind of reduced to this very explicit sexual experience. Whereas queer talks about the whole kind of minority experience when I'm not just having sex. Was that, was that be yeah, accurate for a lot I, of people? I know people use it differently. And sure. I mean, I mean, certainly, certainly it extends beyond just sexual orientation mm-hmm. or just gender identity, though it can, you know, involve both of those things. Um, but broadly, yeah, it speaks to non-normative ways of being in the world mm-hmm. when it comes to gender, sexuality, etc. cetera. Um, and so for instance, when I say something like the queering of family, what I mean by that is if there's a normative societal way mm-hmm. of finding family, mm-hmm. um, ah, enter into your heterosexual marriage <laughs> and, you know, yeah. have, your, have your biological children. Like anything that falls outside of that norm, whether it's, oh, we're actually not having biological children, um, you right. know, whether because we're, you know, adopting or fostering or, um, oh, we're actually adopting or fostering uh, or having biological children, but we don't have sort of a, a normative heterosexual two-parent household. Right. Um, or uh, we've actually chosen to, to live in community and be uh-huh. committed to one another, um, but not in a way that involves civil yeah. or, uh, you know, Christian marriage uh, as a part of that yeah. dynamic. Um, basically, just ways of rethinking how to do family, rethinking who we live with, who we do life huh. with, um, who we think of as our people, who shows up in our Christmas photos, who right. gets to be our plus one, two, three at weddings, <laughs> um, uh, who, you know, who does, who does huh. life with us, um, yeah. just the dailies of life and in our interactions with other people. 
Um, have you so have you experienced queer, this kind of querying of the family or uh, to, in your yeah in your trajectory? How how, how has that looked in a so uh, so one one particular place that I've experienced it, and I would say yeah, I've I've encountered it in many places, uh, okay. and I continued I continue to try to seek it out and make space for it. Okay. Um, uh, one one example that for me is really beautiful. Um, that I, that I talk about in No Longer Strangers, um, is, uh, so in my relationship with, uh, my, my pastor and his wife and their family, um, my relationship to their two kids. Um, so they've got two boys, um, Mm -hmm. who, uh, the older one just turned 15, uh, and then the younger one will soon turn 12. Um, but when I met them, they were six and three. Um, Hmm. and I've just been kind of in their lives, in and out of their house, seeing them all the time at church and hanging out and, you know, all, all the time for, for years now. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, at one point, um, we were, uh, I was at their house with another friend and, and they were having a conversation and they were like, we can't decide, Greg, if you're more like a, more like a, an older brother or like a weird uncle. Uh, and, <laughs> Go for the weird uncle every time. Uh, Eye patch. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it was interesting to realize, like, I didn't really have a category for yeah. the, like, the relational space that they occupied in my heart. Hmm. Um, but it was in some way familial yeah. In a way that really defied normative categories. Yeah. Um, it was it was weird. And yet if you huh. ask me like, oh, these kids like are like they're they're not they're not your kids, they're not your, you know, yeah. biological children or your niece your nephews or whatever. Yeah. Um uh like how does that how does that work? Um and, and the and the best thing I could I could do, I think, is point you to uh, Isaiah chapter 56. I'm almost sure it's chapter 56. Although, frankly, I'm not good with the numbers. I prefer to think that I quote the Bible like Jesus does. It is written in there someplace. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it is 56. So the eunuch passage? The, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, so in this passage, um, uh, it is 56, yeah, thank goodness. Yeah. 58 um, is the... Mm, it's either 58 or 56. One's nah, the, one's sure, the po- I don't think it's 58. One's the poverty passage the other one's the eunuch passage i think 58 is the one where it's more addressing reversal of poverty and 56 is the eunuch anyway they can yeah, google it yeah. they can google it. yeah that's right yeah look it up um uh and and there's also um uh discussion of like foreigners in in 56 with okay. with the eunuchs um but the specific commentary about the eunuch um is uh let no eunuch say i'm only a dry tree right, right. um uh, and then, uh, I, you know, God through Isaiah goes on to say um, uh, to the eunuch who who honors me and who keeps my Sabbaths, um, I will give uh, to them um, a name and a memorial better than sons mm. and daughters. That's so um, and so there, there's this there's this sense in which the the sort of eunuch impulse, um, right? And I am not physiologically a eunuch. <laughs> that may be TMI for some of our listeners, but whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, it works downstairs, you know. Yeah. Um, and yet, I don't plan to have any any you know uh, biological children. Right. And so, in that sense, I am you know functionally a eunuch to take kind of the the language that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter uh-huh. seven uh, seventeen mm, 19, nineteen. Nineteen. Thank you. Yeah. Matthew so, nineteen, Mark ten, Luke eighteen. There you go. Uh, nice. Uh, the one who chooses to be wasn't born a eunuch, not made a eunuch, but for the sake of the kingdom. Right. Chooses, right. to, live chooses as, to live as a Which unit. most people say um, that's more symbolic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anokizo, I think. Um, uh, to, make, nice. to make himself a eunuch. Right. Um, I mean, poor Origen took it literally, but yeah, I think, uh, <laughs> But most of us do not. Right. Um, but, there, but there is this sense of like, yeah, having chosen to live like a, having chosen to live like a eunuch, like a person right. who, 
who is not going to produce physical, right. biological offspring, what does it mean to still leave some kind of meaningful legacy? What huh. does it mean to still be a part of the lives of people younger than me in a way that is not paternal? I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not their dad. We're not confusing me for their dad or for, you know, right. they've got biological uncles. I'm not, I'm not trying to pretend that I'm one of those. Right. Um, I'm not trying to act like a biological brother, even though I'm not. Um, and yet... Uh, in the in the most non-normative of ways, in the queerest of ways, if you will, um, when I think about family, I think about them. Yeah. Um, and so the to say that we cannot just be like, oh, how nice that you have some young friends, isn't that cute? Yeah. But to actually honor, we can we can choose to live our lives in ways that intentionally prefer uh, intentionally inconvenience ourselves for the sake of people right. who we have chosen to make our family. Um, there's a, there's a big idea within the queer community of something called chosen family. Right. Yeah. Um, I love that and phrase. this is, and this is especially for people who, you know, are, are kicked out of their, their homes or are distanced from their families mm-hmm. because of their experience of uh, sexual orientation or gender identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it doesn't necessarily, uh, it's not, not necessarily exclusive to that experience. Um, it, it can speak more broadly to the choice to live like family ties exist where our societal expectation would not look and see those family ties naturally existing. Uh, um, yeah. Well, that's that's. I mean, that's Mark ten, right? I mean, ten twenty nine to thirty, where it, it really pushes home that with familiar language, people who leave mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, fields will gain back a hundredfold in this life. Brothers, sisters, mothers, and it really that's more than just you're going to leave behind biological family for the sake of friends and community. It's like the family for family, right? I mean, it is that. That is the passage, right, about chosen yeah, family. Yeah, like, it's, yeah. I mean, the the it's hard because it's a two way street. Like, like I often tell heterosexual married Christian people, like we are the embodiment of the reward part part of uh, that Jesus promises. Like it's, dare I say, it would be almost disobedient to not on some level, like live out that vision. And I know like, look, it's different for different people and seasons and patterns and situations or whatever, but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, w- I would say the, the New Testament vision of family um, is kind of the original chosen family yeah. that exists um, among ties that are meant to be stronger than blood. Um, yeah. And so for those people who read the New Testament and say, this is primarily an affirmation of the value of the nuclear family unit, mm-hmm. I would say you've, you've missed the point. Yeah. The point is actually that the, the nuclear family unit needs to be subsidiary to that which is yeah. more primary, which is the, the chosen family that exists within the body of Christ. right. right. Yeah, man. And we're far from, I mean, we have so many cultural, both Christian cultural and just American cultural things that just really war against that. Like it's really an uphill, even people like me who believes everything you're saying, it's like functionally, it's like a constant daily like reminder because the narrative, alternative narrative, the family centric kind of, dare I say the idolatry of family. And then when I say that, it's not like we have a, I have a call to be a to disciple my kids, to love my wife and everything. And Paul even says in first Corinthians seven, right. That like, if you get married, you're going to be occupied with distractions of this world, namely caring for your wife. So he acknowledged that that's is a reality. Um, but that has to be held in congruence or intertwined with 
living out the Mark 10 vision. Anyway, I'm preaching. And, and, and maybe, maybe it's not, maybe, maybe sometimes the problem when we're like, we got to make space for the single people in the midst of, maybe the problem is that insofar as we frame those pursuits as dichotomous with one another, insofar as we frame pursuit of relationship outside of our, you know, biological or legal family um, with pursuit of relationship within that, like, oh, the more time I give to my nuclear family, the less time I can therefore invest in other. Maybe we need to see those yeah. two. Maybe we need to see the circles of that Venn diagram as overlapping much more than they Absolutely. do so that we're not saying I have to go take time to leave the house so that I can meet right. up with my single friend for coffee <laughs> and we can, you know, but yeah. maybe instead we just need to let our lives in mesh yeah. a bit more. Yeah. Um, when we have done that and we are far from doing it as much as we should, but I, I've just noticed that our family is super blessed by it. Like when you even use the phrase like the inconvenience or whatever, I'm like, I, I, it's just not like it's, it's, we're so, I mean, you've seen our, my kids, like they, you know, I come home from work like, Hey dad, put their earbuds back in. You, Greg comes over and everybody, you know, it's, it's pretty rare that my the kids will come down from downstairs, drop what they're doing to greet anybody that comes in without being told. Ah, they're, that's not fair. But they, but yeah, when they hear you come in the door, it's yeah, I'm a little jealous. <laughs> <laughs> and and I do feel like, like even even with your family, I feel like I've had I've had the pleasure of filling in some ways like a slightly avuncular role. Oh, avuncular yeah. for those of you unaware Dude. is the adjectival form of the word uncle. Um, there's an adjective, really? Yeah. Isn't say that say it again. You, avuncular. Avuncular is the adjectival yeah, form. It comes of from uncle. the Latin uh, avunculus, I believe. Golly, wow. Avuncular, um, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. So, so like to get to fill a bit of an avuncular role yeah. in the family, um, which again, uh, it, 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 it's a gift to me mm-hmm. insofar as it's like, yeah, like this is a bit of expression of family. Um, but hopefully it's also a gift to it you guys. Like hundred percent. Yeah. And so in that sense, it's not it's not that doing this sort of like this more queer family ties defined in a way that's not just nuclear right. family. That's not supposed to be like an attack against the nuclear family, right? Those those of us who talk about things like queering family are often accused of like you're just trying to destroy the nuclear family as the Lord designed it. And yeah. it's like the point is not to destroy. The point is actually that like family as like a spouse and kids was meant to exist. Like the best vision Jesus had for us involves the enmeshment with the lives of other people. And when that happens properly, it's actually better for everybody than it is when the, you know, husband and wife and 2.7 children go off into their own little cloistered space and do their own thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, that's it. That's so good. And you're, are uh, real quick, can you check the time? I can't see the time. I, I, I can. It looks like we're at one hour. Or what's even, the actual? One hour and ten seconds. Oh, that time. Oh, eleven okay. thirty-eight. A couple more minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. The cla- the classic example. I was wondering. <laughs> you know, so my wife and I we travel to conferences and stuff, and um, I, I travel more than she does. But especially in the last few years, she's been doing a lot more traveling. And oftentimes, she kind of comes in and comes out quickly. I have to stay longer, so we don't travel together very often. But <laughs> so fun, and you know, I, she 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 doesn't love traveling alone, you know. Um, and it might might be kind of old. Well, might be kind of old school. Some would say it's old school. Some would say it's not. It's just what. But like, I, you know, to have another guy traveling with her, you know, typically would be like. I don't know. Like she wouldn't want, she, she would feel kind of uncomfortable, you know, um, 
But it was so great when like you and her came out to the board meeting and she's like, oh yeah, me and Greg are on the same flight together. She's like, is that, you think that's fine, right? I'm like, he's gay, you're not. It's perfect act because she does get hit on and stuff and airplane, airplanes, you get, you know, um, and she just, she doesn't like that. And it's all, you know, but like, it was like so perfect. I'm like, dude, find yourself a gay traveling companion. And it's like, this is like the ideal situation. We should create a, <laughs> we should create a service, honestly. <laughs> gay traveling buddy. Uh, yeah. It, it was, it was so much fun. No, yeah. And both of you have a very honest relationship. You have your extroverted and introverted. So like, Hey, you want to talk for a little bit? Sure. And then uh, 10 minutes, can we just read and, you know, do our thing? And it was like, it was I think it was a great experience, right? It was, it was fantastic. Both of us, both of us, after that trip, were like, "We got to do this again." <laughs> I'm sure there will be more opportunities. Um, uh, any so uh, to to land the plane. Final big picture encouragements for people that are listening. They're like, "Man, I I do think I've absorbed kind of this family centric narrative in a way that might be unhealthy." Man, I I do feel like. I've been blind to, you know, um, saying things, doing things that could make single people feel excluded or not truly part of the family. Um, what are some things say churches or just individuals, I guess, but also some things churches could do better in this area uh, to be more inclusive? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm always, I'm always torn between suggestions that feel like here's a nice thing you could tack onto the way that you already do life and suggestions that fundamentally fundamentally amount to something like burn down the whole system and start it from scratch. Um, and, and, and maybe, maybe both are, both are constructive in their own ways at various times. Um, I think on the, on, on sort of the smaller scale level, um, just to think about ways that you can, uh, I would say if you're, if you're, uh, in in marriage or pursuing marriage, um, uh, think about ways that you can turn that vocation outward. Um, okay. uh, Cutter Calloway is great on this, by the way. His so book, good. Breaking the Marriage Idol, so good in terms of conceiving of how the Christian vocation of marriage is actually not meant to be a turning inward of two people just exclusively toward each other, but it's actually meant to be a, a turning outward, arm in arm, toward the world so that you can collectively... Uh, invite collectively, welcome collectively, work um, for the for the benefit of everybody, not mm. just sort of for your mm. own yeah. um, individual, you know, duality. Yeah. And I, I feel like if you have a microphone, a platform, an influence, like just I don't know, like it sounds so simplistic, but just being aware that everything you say, every illustration you give, like just assume half the people. It may not be true in a church, but just assume half the people are single. How would this? feel. Hey, we have a family camp coming up, you know, like, is that biological family? Are the single people excluded? How does that make them like, if you were single, how would, you know, how would they feel if every single illustration from the pulpit is, you know, my, my wife, my smoking hot wife, and my five kids and how wonderful they are. I don't know. Yeah. Like just, it, it's made me apprehensive probably to a fault, even posting stuff about my family or kids on social media. In fact, my kids started feeling bad. Like you never post. My wife's like, there's not a single picture of me on your Instagram. You know, do you not want me? I'm like, no, I was, cause I don't like when people just are constantly like, let's look as good as we possibly can. Sure. Stop fighting. Sure. You know, I'm going to take out Instagram pictures and we look all per like just, just being aware sure. of how somebody who has a broken family uh, or doesn't have a family, maybe they will or want one. Yeah. Maybe they're called a celibacy or whatever. And I don't know. And I think, I think maybe a really practical thing there is like, I mean, I think it's great when people, you know, love their family. If you want to post about your family on social media, awesome. But like, do you have other people in your life yeah. who you <laughs> also have deep enough relationships with yeah. to also go on trips with them and 
post about it on social media and like yeah. like is is the is the cutesy like look at us doing our beautiful belonging thing yeah. does that only happen in the context of your nuclear family and if so maybe the problem is not like how dare you hang out with your nuclear family yeah. maybe it's like maybe is there is there a less insular way of doing that could you actually right. do that in a way that that's more inclusive of more people than just yeah. your little mini tribe you know who does a great job at that on social media is um and i from the times i i rarely like looking at the when the times i've seen them it's other kriegs i feel like when i do oh, see them yeah. in like family stuff at least 50% of the time i feel like cat our mutual trans friend is is there like there are the kids and laughing and all this stuff. And it's just, you could tell like, wow, this just is a subtle, I mean, kind of 2022 way of kind of, I don't know, like je- demonstrating that our family is an inclusive family. But yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the book, No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a uh, World of Alienation, put up by IVP. Um, great book. Highly recommend this. And I mean, I know I, last time we talked about single gay Christian, but this is, so I, I haven't read a ton of books that would be within this theme, like hospitality belonging. So I think it's an outstanding book. I can't compare it to anything else. There might be other good stuff out there. Um, but I can with this book. And this is my now number one go-to like memoir. Not, it's not just a memoir, though. It's like a theological. I mean, it's so just all around good. But, you know, Washington Waiting, Wesley Hill's iconic so book that changed so many lives. Like I... I now recommend yours just because it's, it was written 10 years later. And, and obviously Wes is amazing, but if people said, I want one kind of memoir book to read, this is my number one go-to. So well, if you have not read single gay Christian, uh, personal journey of faith and sexual identity with an awesome picture of Greg Coles on the cover, your first book and you got your picture on the cover. Hey, yo, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> no, I'm, It's such a beautifully written book. It's like, that's, it's not even if you're not like if you're like well I'm not really into reading a book on sexuality then still read it because it's like just such a good book so anyway yeah hey thanks yeah it's always a pleasure <laughs> to hang out in your basement yeah thanks for listening to Theology and Raw folks we will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>